Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Benny Jang, Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Shea Eye Institute, President of the Cornea Society, and Secretary for the Annual Meeting for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Dr. Jang and I chat about the annual meeting, being a clinician scientist, and his love of fast cars. Dr. Benny Jang is the Harold G. Shea Professor and Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology and Director of the Shea Eye Institute of the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Dr. Jang is an NIH-funded clinician scientist specializing in cornea and ocular surface research. He's also the president of the Cornea Society on the board of directors for the American Board of Ophthalmology and serves as a secretary for the annual meeting for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. We are honored to have him here with us today at Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Benny. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's so good to see you because I last saw you in the spring at the annual meeting retreat and we talked all about the annual meeting, and the annual meeting is coming up. And so I first really want to pick your brain about what it means to be the secretary for the annual meeting for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. What even is that? Take us through everything. It's a job that I actually absolutely love. You know, I've been part of the annual meeting program since 2010, I think. I started as a reviewer. I reviewed for a few years and I became a subcommittee member and then I became uh, the chair of the committee for cornea and then I became the associate secretary. Now, um, as a secretary, if you ask me what I do, I, I guess I essentially help oversee the programming for the entire annual meeting. It is a fantastic opportunity to contribute to, the, to our society. Well, it's a huge event for ophthalmology. It's one thing I love about our, our specialty is that we're still a relatively small group. And, you know, they say the annual meeting is where all of ophthalmology meets, but it really kind of is. We have such good attendance. Everybody goes to the annual meeting. It really is a cornerstone of, of the year for an ophthalmologist. At least that's how I feel about it. Oh, it totally is. And we think that it culminates with the annual meeting, but the process of planning it starts right after the annual meeting occurs. Oh, I bet. For the following year. And, you know, I think all of our members know, you know, the, the call for abstracts and then, you know, the invitations for things. But there's so many symposia and, you know, courses and lectureships that, that are going on. It is like building a small city for just a, yeah. a few days. Yes. That's what makes it challenging, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, I believe that. I mean, you're even preparing years and years in advance. I mean, they, they have all kinds of things worked out for the next five years for the annual meeting, is, is my understanding, just because there's so much that goes into it. Yeah. At any given time, the locations for annual meetings are planned out 10 years in advance. That's wild. 10 yes. years. 10 years. And so it's not quite so easy to say, well, you know, let's just change to a different venue. First of all, our meeting is so big yeah. that there's only a few convention centers in this country that can actually hold us. Right. And then we have to reserve those, otherwise we'll lose the dates, because the fall is the busiest time of the year for conventions. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, and the city itself has to be able to support everyone, not just the convention center, but right. you need enough hotels and people need to be able to get there. I don't think about all these things that go into it. Yeah, it, it is. And then if you think about all the buses that have to work to bring people from oh, the hotels right. to the convention center, the meeting itself is a small city, and then you have all this <laughs> transport coming in for people to, to get to the meeting. Exactly. It's a really big event, but it's a great opportunity to really, for all of ophthalmology to meet, like like we say, it's a 
a little bit of a cliche, but that's when we see all of our colleagues, we exchange information, yeah. and there's a lot of learning that happens. Right. Well, it's a cliche because it's true. And I think people get are getting more and more excited. The momentum is building after kind of the COVID hiatus. I feel like we all really missed being together in person. And every year, I think people get more and more excited to be back together in person. At least that's how I feel about it. I feel the same thing. And I think most people do. I think if one thing that the pandemic did do for us is tell us that we can do these things hybrid sure. and allowing for more opportunities for people who can't travel for a particular episode right. to be able to still participate. But I think by and large, you know, we're humans, we like the interaction. Yeah. And so to have the opportunity to come in person, most people will jump at it if they can. Right. Oh, I love that. No, I, I do think we're obligated to have a virtual component now. That's the precedent going forward. That's what everyone's going to expect that. And that's challenging, but I'm glad that we're back in person. Take me through, if you don't mind, all the different aspects of the meeting, because I mean, the expo hall is its own little city within your city. You know, it's a township, I'd say. Yeah. And then you have the all the symposia, the, all the skills transfer, the wet lab stuff, which is a whole separate section. Like, how do you organize all those different townships? <laughs> well, to start off, I'll say that the staff for the annual meeting program is amazing. Sure. And we think that we're helping organize, but they're really doing everything. Yes, they're doing okay, all so the work. Let, let me do a shout out to, to Deb Rosencrantz and her team for just building the city, basically. Yeah, that's great. There are you know a number of volunteers that lead different committees to put on the skills transfers, to put on the special programs, to put on the symposia, and then all the courses and, and everything else, the mm. free papers. So different people kind of manage that and oversee that with their committees. And, you know, there are hundreds of these events that are going on at any given time right. throughout this one exhibition hall. What we've done in the last couple of years is try to standardize the timing of things. And so you'll notice that we went from one and two hour courses down to everything is 75 minutes. And the rationale behind that is to have it so that people don't get confused mm -hmm. because I'm in a two hour course. I'm not going to be able to make this thing. And it's like passing time in high school. After the 75-minute course, there's half an hour that everybody is out of everything. See, that's it's, great. That's where all the mingling happens. That's right. That's the fun part. Yeah. We did that purposefully so that we could have that. And after every 75-minute session, there's a half-hour break. And so you can never get confused on timing. I love that. And, you know, the idea is that we, we want to, you know, encourage that networking. And so you can plan on, okay, we'll meet you after this session. Right. Oh, good. there's so much thought that goes into that. And I can imagine that it's like Tetris trying to build the schedule. Yes. And so that makes it easier if everything is the same. I love that. One, also, while I'm thinking of it, huge shout out I want to give to you and Academy and all everybody doing annual meeting stuff is that we have childcare this year, which yes. is so near and dear to my heart, Camp AAO. Ages six months to 12 years. So you can bring your tiny baby. And that's just tremendous. And I think Academy is really a leader in supporting families and having childcare this year. And I know we've had it before, but I just I want to give you a, a huge shout out for that. Thank yeah, you. Well, I th a lot of people are, are so happy about that. Yeah, it, we obviously try to be proactive and think about these things, but you know, we don't necessarily have the opportunity to think about everything in advance, and so feedback from people yeah. makes things happen. Yeah. I, I've talked to a lot of people about bringing their kids, and I, I think it'll take a couple years to gain momentum and have people really sign on to dropping off their kids, but I do think we're obligated to support families and support young ophthalmologists. You know, My passion is young ophthalmologists, and if we want our yos to be engaged, 
in ophthalmology, we have to support them having young families. That's just the time of life that we're in. So I love that. I'm really proud of Academy. And I do think that we're leaders. There's a lot of other big national medical subspecialties that don't offer support for their families. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we, the last few years, have redesigned the the program and the schedule and how things run logistically. But I think we're also looking forward in the next couple of years to intentionally designing the program and the layout so that the need to eat, rest, and meet with people is kind of better built into the, mm-hmm. to the, to the floor plan. Okay. So. It's always, I mean, you get your steps in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's not like we haven't done it, but I think, you know, intentionally thinking about how to completely rethink this. Yeah. You know, we're, we're taking steps to do that. I think you're being very innovative. It's great. Another area of innovation, I think, with the annual meeting is your focus on sustainability. Would you talk about that? Because I think that's really tremendous and also at the forefront because a lot of conferences are not thinking about that. Yeah, the Academy has been looking at the sustainability waste and mm-hmm. everything for you know many, many years. Yeah. And even in the last few years, you probably noticed things that we no longer have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, the bag the bags. holders. Ba- oh, oh, badge holders. No, badge holders. Bags, right? And you think, okay, so we don't have to worry about the bag. But the bags were probably the biggest bang for our buck ever to get rid of because these were bags that were produced, printed in China, Uh and then shipped over to the meeting side. Right. And so when we got rid of that, badge holders, the printed programs for Subday and stuff like that, a full truckload of stuff disappeared. Okay. So we've already done that. But, you know, we're taking steps to make sure that we actually know what impact we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because we can say that we're getting rid of a truckload of stuff, but how much impact are we actually doing? And we don't have a baseline, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're actually engaging a consultant to help us determine what our baseline is um, over the next couple of years. And then they're going to give us suggestions, or this year, and then they'll give us suggestions on what we can do going forward to try to you know, decrease our carbon emissions. That's really good. You wrote this piece in JAMA, I believe, about updating where we are with sustainability for the annual meeting. And I love that because when I think of sustainability and ophthalmology and our efforts, I mostly think of waste in the operating room, waste in clinic. But one big part of it, besides just all the stuff, the printed stuff, is the travel And anytime Mm. I think about like being green and, and, you know, I'm, I'm all about it. I live on a farm and I compost all my stuff and like, no, no, you know, I do all the things. And the biggest thing is, is air travel is like the worst thing you can do for the planet and Mm -hmm. carbon emissions. And so I, I didn't even occur to me like, oh, wow, we're bringing all these people in that are flying in. That's probably the biggest component of our carbon emissions and, and the effect, the footprint that we're leaving. You're absolutely right, and, yeah. and I don't dispute that at all. But I have to say that you know we, we actually have to think about logistically what that means because mm-hmm. it's not like the airlines have produced more flights because of the academy. Of course, happening. right. There's, so the planes yeah. are going to be flying anyway, <laughs> yes. right? And so, yes, each individual person technically is eating up a seat and therefore creating mm-hmm. the emissions that go with the plane, but honestly, the plane's flying anyway, <laughs> right? I'm just being realistic. No, it's great. Right? It's great. And the plane is flying anyway, yep, no yep. matter whether or not we have academy. But I do think that there are ways that we can think about how we can try to mitigate that. You know, hotel rooms also create, you know, yep. carbon emissions, right? But again, it's not like those rooms don't exist and aren't being turned over even if we're not there. Mm-hmm. But if we kind of figure out a baseline, we can kind of think about how we can try to chip away at this mm-hmm. and make meaningful impact. Yeah. You know, right now, simply saying we're going to get rid of one thing 
doesn't necessarily tell us what our actual impact is. Right. So that's why we're getting a consultant. I think that's great to get a consultant because until you measure it, until you know, you don't know. Correct. And, <laughs> and then you can't actually change it. And I also think with everything, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits. And there is tremendous benefit for us all getting together. And we do what we can to, like you said, mitigate what we're doing and offset the impact. But we also have to realize how much benefit there is for gathering. Right, exactly. And so I think every decision that we make going forward is going to be through this lens of sustainability. I like that. Um, and, you know, from single use, you know, those banners, right? Oh, right. They create a lot of waste. It is advertising that we get. So it's a lot of money the Academy gets from sponsors. But we have to be creative at how we can still get sponsorship but not create that waste, mm -hmm. right? And so we're looking through that lens. I think that's terrific. And I think Academy should be applauded for their efforts. It's really great. So well done. It's not me. It's the Academy no, team. Well, it's the whole team. It's true. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad to have you at, at the lead. It's, it's really terrific. I kind of want to pivot a little sure. and talk about cornea and your research interests and your career. You're a clinician scientist. You have had NIH funding. You've had a K and an R01. You've had a whole career. Talk us through some of your passions and, and your questions that you've answered over the years. I, I love hearing about that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I love cornea, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I knew I was going to be a cornea specialist when the day I started ophthalmology. How? Really? How? So I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon in medical school. Okay. Then, I can see that. And then I met one. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And there you so go. I still love the concept of transplantation. I like transplant immunology. And so I was searching for a surgical subspecialty field that would allow me to do transplants. Mm. I fell in love with ophthalmology during medical school. And there's only one part of the eye that you can transplant, which is the cornea. Now, I know that the joke is on me because there's no transplant immunology, <laughs> right, with the cornea. Right. Um, except for special circumstances. That's funny. Um, but that is how I got to be a cornea transplant. Oh, how person. interesting. Yeah. So. Although I like doing surgery, my passion has always been ocular surface disease. Mm -hmm. And so I liked ocular surface disease when I was a resident before it was a thing, you know, and before people really thought it was cool. It was just the bane of everybody's existence. It's and the now, bane of my existence, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> but it's not your problem. No, right? thank goodness. <laughs> so I started my research career looking at treatments for the ocular surface mm -hmm. and how we can improve that. It was the basis of my K grant and then looking at novel molecules that would help heal uh, epithelium okay, um, and heal epithelial defects. And that was the basis of my uh, R01. And since then, because during my K grant, I actually earned a master's in clinical investigation to understand trial design. I was very interested in becoming a trialist. Okay. And so I pivoted during my R to become more of a trialist. And so I've run many, many clinical trials looking at trying to treat the ocular surface mm -hmm. disease. And currently I am involved in the Z study, mm -hmm. which is a Zoster disease study, which is a big multinational NIH funded study. And we actually just stopped enrollment. We were done with enrollment and we're waiting out the last some number of people to finish out their course okay. of treatment. And then we're going to analyze the data. And so hopefully in the next, within the next year, we're going to have the data out. And this trial started in 2016. Long trial. Yeah. So people have been waiting yeah. for what I hope will be standard of care for, to determine what standard of care is for treating Zoster anterior segment disease. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a complex condition yeah. to treat. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, that's my passion. It's ocular surface disease. But, you know, I am involved in other trials looking at surgical trials, surgical outcomes, mm -hmm. looking at the new endothelial keratoplasty versus, you know, decimate stripping only. Yeah. Um, involved in some, some trials with uh, PIs who are running it from other institutions. My pet research area has always been eye banking. And I've been in, interested in that, you know, since I was a resident. Except for small foundation grants, it was not the focus of what I did, mm -hmm. but it's always been a side thing that I've been looking at. And a lot has gone on in eye banking that has really helped us as corneal surgeons. Um, in terms of storage or retrieval? Storage, mitigating infections, okay. um, and the like. And then looking at how the eye banks roll in what we do as surgeons, you know, as we're doing lamella keratoplasty, where the eye bank is actually starting the surgery by cutting our tissue for us right. and preparing it. Stuff that we did initially when we started, and we had a lot of tough time turning that over to someone else. I see. Okay. But as it turns out, the eye bank technicians who do it day in and day out... Probably do a great job at it. They do a better job than we do. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> I'll go on record saying that. Wow. And so their involvement in corneal surgery and allowing us to provide these outstanding outcomes for patients can't be underscored enough. So you're developing standard protocols and practice patterns to work with an eye bank to facilitate transplants and get the best tissue possible. Is that right? I'm involved in, in a lot of that stuff um, through the Eye Bank Association of America. My independent research has been really looking at trying to prevent infections after surgery uh -huh. um, with the storage media. And so the big thing for us is the fungal infections uh -huh. after keratoplasty. So I've been, been looking at that for years. Wow. Yeah. What's it like to get a master's in clinical trial design? Is that what you said, clinical... Uh, technically, it's clinical investigation. Clinical investigation. Yeah. What does that mean? What do you learn? So learn everything from statistics mm -hmm. to trial design to ethics of running clinical trials. Mm. Part of my coursework was in the law school, was in wow. biostatistics, was in entrepreneurship sure. at the business school. And so there's a lot of that that I had to do, but it's really, really interesting. I would not say that I'm a card-carrying statistician. Okay. No, no. But clinical trial design, I, I do understand very well. And I'm sure you have to work with industry a decent amount. And so that's probably a whole other situation of having to navigate that. I work with industry for some industry-sponsored mm -hmm. uh, trials. trials. Um, yeah, we, we do a lot of that. But I have been involved in the planning of many NIH-funded clinical trials. The trial design experience I have was very helpful. That's fascinating. I see everything through the lens of being in academics, and it, clearly when you're at a big institution, it's really easy to set up trials, and you have lots of support, and your IRB, and you have study coordinators and all the things, but I've learned more, especially I think within retina, but maybe also in cornea, there's a lot of people in private practice who have really robust clinical trial practices. Do you find that too with cornea, and do you think there's a place for someone in private practice to be able to participate in these trials? I actually think it's much easier if you're in private practice. To really? Produce. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because the red tape that occurs in academic institutions to try to get things through the IRB sure. sometimes will automatically be a game stopper for sponsors. Wow. We need to get this started next month. We can't wait three or four okay. months for you guys so to forget get it. this through contracting and then the IRB. And so a lot of times they will actually use private practices because it's faster. To okay. get things through. So I think absolutely people who are interested in participating in trials and, and helping, whether it's bringing something new to the market or establishing standard of care, I think it's, it's not a bad idea. 
we do participate. And what we have infrastructure set up for is running federally funded trials mm -hmm. um, that are basically, you know, investigator initiated. What are the big questions in cornea trials right now? What are kind of the, the big, big areas for research? You talked about regenerating epithelium and, and healing, non-healing corneas, transplants. What are, what are the big questions you're looking at? Mm, so right now, some of the surgical things that we're looking at is, you know, whether, you know, endothelial keratoplasty in Fuchs, for example, mm. is better than, you know, decimation stripping, stripping only, only, for example. That's one thing. You know, what is the role of real kinase inhibitor? Does it actually help with the endothelial mm -hmm. migration? And those are some surgical questions that we have. Okay. Some exciting stuff that's coming around is cell-based therapy, as you may have heard about. And so Shigeru Kinoshida in Japan has been working on, you know, culturing human corneal endothelial cells, which, as you know, in humans don't replicate, mm -hmm. but he's able to culture them to replicate and to proliferate so that one cornea, one donor cornea is able to produce enough corneal endothelial cells for 100 recipients. Wow. He published this in the New England Journal about five years ago. Okay. Okay. The, you know, this concept of doing this and the first 11 patients. Taking non-replicating cells and yeah, getting, getting them to replicate. Yeah, right. And then injecting them into the eye. Okay. of a patient. Then five-year follow-up data showed that, you know, 10 of the 11 patients that he first started with actually did well and the corneas are clear. They took, wow. They took. They've done over 130 now. And six months ago, the Japan equivalent of the FDA actually approved this as therapy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So for bullous keratopathy in Japan, <laughs> you can do a paracentesis. Uh -huh. You could take a little cannula and kind of vacuum off the bad endothelial cells. Uh-huh. And then inject, inject some, good ones. some cells and pretend like you're a retina surgeon and ask the patient to face down, right, for <laughs> and three, they three hours. Stick there. And then gravity pulls them down. And then they and get then up they'll work. and they go about their business. Is that amazing? That is amazing. <laughs> Why isn't this sweeping? What are the limitations? What's keeping us from adopting this here? Just we have to do the studies here? We have to do the here? studies here. Okay. You know, it's coming. In the U.S., there, there's a group that's looking at magnetized endothelial cells. And so they're culturing them. They're getting the cells to phagocytose these magnetic particles. And then they're getting injected into the eye. So that they stick. And then you put a magnet in front of the Stop. eye. Stop. No, for real. <laughs> and it pulls all of the endothelial cells right to where, where it's supposed them. to be. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's cool. And then we're also, you know, on the that horizon. That seems a little weird. Well, it's a little weird, but <laughs> That it's one's cool. a little weird. But it's cool. Okay. What happens if you need an MRI? I actually don't know the answer. <laughs> I asked the same question. Did you? Yeah. That's yeah, so I funny. I the same question. I hope it doesn't come through the corner. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that, right? No, it's probably tiny. Yeah. But still. And then gene so therapy. Interesting. For, yes. For things like Fuchs, right? And so there's a couple of companies that are working on, you know, therapeutics, drops, mm -hmm. for, to like slow down progression or stop progression of Fuchs. Wow, really fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing stuff that's coming around. That's so exciting. What a fun time to be getting to see all these new discoveries and practicing and, and then seeing how it really directly influences patients. Yeah, it's going to put us out of business, but that's okay. That's our goal. That's always the goal, right? <laughs> Isn't that the goal for everything is try to put yourself out of business and then find a new need and yeah. go to that? Well, at least in the U.S., right? And so, you know, to put it in context, you know, this is a problem for us here in the U.S., but globally... Yeah. There's still a, a tremendous need for actual corneal tissue. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that the eye banks aren't well set up globally, and there's a huge need for that. 
Yes, there is. and Especially with proper storage capabilities and all the things. Yeah, everything. Everything from like a legal framework to set up iBanks to, yeah. you know, yeah. having a donation program, people to buy into it and all the ethics behind it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Going a lot. <laughs> wow. So you're busy. I'm excited. That's really terrific. Yeah. Good. Tell me about some of the stuff you do outside of medicine. What are mm, your hobbies? My hobbies. Tell me about you, Benny. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a complicated time for me now. My my kids are getting older. My youngest is a uh, senior in high school. And so that's with, gotta be so fun though. Well, it's fun except that because I made a move, um, mm -hmm. I didn't want to move him. So they still live in Maryland. I see. And I live in Philadelphia and, and you know, I commute on the weekends. And so I'm missing a little bit of it. Wrestling season is coming up. And, you know, last year I missed only one wrestling match. Wow. Good and for so you. It's a two hour drive, sometimes for 13 seconds. But uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited. But as you know, you know, life revolves around your children. And now yes. that, you know, the last one is about to leave, I'll tell you that my wife and I are looking forward to traveling. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, well, you know, with a lot of travel that I do, she'll finally be able to come with me. Yeah, how fun. Yeah, and so I'm very excited about that. Life is all seasons, I'm learning, and you don't have to do everything all at once, and there's lots of different seasons where, you know, I'm not in the traveling season, but I'm sure I will be one day, and yeah. you're going to enter that new area, which is fun. Here's my question. You said it's a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. How long does it take you? <laughs> Isn't there something about not incriminating yourself? <laughs> the fastest I have ever made it from Philadelphia to our house in Maryland is an hour and 38 minutes. That's very impressive. Yeah, so I'll let you do the math. Uh, yeah, exactly. that, that's quite quite many miles per hour. That, yeah. This is what I learned about you the first time I met you is that you love fast cars. I love fast what cars. What are you driving right now? After my beloved car that they couldn't replace was totaled last year. So um, sad. Yeah, very sad. I have... Um, a BMW M2 competition. My kids always say, why do you have to get these like niche cars? You know, uh -huh. I, I said, because they sound cool. And they sound fast. like the vroom vroom sounds yes. cool or the saying the name of the car. No, no. The actual the sound, sound sounds cool. Okay. Yes. My previous car <laughs> actually had a button that made the exhaust louder. No. It did. It's <laughs> <laughs> so when you're driving that fast. Do you listen to music? Do you listen to books, podcasts, or are you just in your thoughts thinking about iBanks and Zoster? I do a lot of different things when I'm driving. If I'm just driving around by myself, mm -hmm. I listen to music and I think about whatever it is that I'm going to think about. Mm -hmm. I like having a commute because it gives me time to right. be by myself. I'm an introvert. And I like to be by myself sometimes, mm -hmm. like a lot of the time. It's restorative. I think it a is. commute can really be restorative. It really is. And I, and I really get to kind of re-energize by simply being by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Um, but on long drives, if I know that I'm, if I'm commuting from Baltimore to Philly or, or vice mm -hmm. versa and I'm not taking the train, then I will plan to listen to meetings or podcasts that I have been either assigned or provided the opportunity to listen to. Right. And I just cue them up. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's been such a delight to talk to you, really, about all the things. I so appreciate it, and it's great to see you in person, and yeah. I can't wait to see you in San Francisco. I can't wait to see you as well, and I hope that we have a great turnout. We are ahead of registration for last year, so I'm very, very excited and hoping our meeting is going to be great, and I, I definitely look forward to seeing you again, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 